This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Harvard University Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Idealist, Wendell Wilkie's wartime quest to build one world by Samuel Zip. In The Idealist, Historian Samuel Zip tells the story of Republican presidential candidate Wendell Wilkie's 1942 world tour. As the threat of fascism swept the world, Wilkie challenged Americans to resist the original America First movement, warned of the dangers of narrow nationalism during World War II, and urged Americans to resist empire and end racial segregation. At a time when America First is again a rallying cry, Wilkie's questioning of the liberal world order and his vision for democratic globalism is indispensable history. The Idealist, Wendell Wilkie's Wartime Quest to Build One World, by Samuel Zip, out now from Harvard University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I had been planning to do this interview with Joe Lowndes and Nikhil Paul Singh on the state of right-wing politics sometime soon. After last Wednesday, we decided to have the conversation right away. Both Joe and Nikhil have been on the show before, and the two, conveniently for you, represent different tendencies of a left debate over how to think about today's right wing. This debate is often conducted on Twitter in the form of the question of whether Trump and Trumpism are fascist. I think that debate often conflates and confuses various debates. One is over the question of how to define fascism. Another question is how dangerous Trumpism is and what sort of danger it poses. And yet a third question is what comprises the social basis for Trumpism. Though they share many points of agreement, Joe tends to emphasize the danger of the radical street-fighting right, while Nikhil argues that such an emphasis obscures the danger of the imperial and carceral U.S. state. Whatever your take, one should for good reason be worried about much of the liberal response to Trumpism in general and the riot at the Capitol in particular. We're seeing comparisons to 9-11, news anchors calling people terrorists, laments that such mob violence is supposed to be relegated to the banana republics in our imperial periphery, and just generally all sorts of sanctimony about the sacred being profaned. Political theorist Corey Robin has been eloquent in making the case against a certain liberal Trump threat inflation, namely that many liberals have their argument about Trump's threat to norms and institutions entirely backward because it is the constitutionally enshrined counter-majoritarian institutions of the Electoral College, the Senate, and the courts that Republicans must depend on in an era in which they can no longer win majority support. As Robin puts it, quote, The unsettling fact of the current regime is that it depends, ultimately, not upon these bogeymen of democracy, not on demagoguery, populism, or the masses, but upon the constitutional mainstays we learned about in high school civics. The most potent source of the GOP's power is neither fascism nor authoritarianism. It is gonzo constitutionalism. And so, whatever 
you make of Trump and today's far right, it is clear that there is no defeating them without an attack on the counter-majoritarian institutions that so often keep a reactionary minority party in power. To do that, we need more left power. There are, as Jane McAlevey puts it, no shortcuts. As Robin writes in a recent Jacobin essay, which I will link to in the show notes, quote, Wednesday's mob was attacking the legislature and the results of a democratic election in which the forces of a reactionary party suffered a blow, not a lethal blow, but a blow. The mob's attack was a white supremacist spasm against not a multiracial democracy, but the possibility of a multiracial democracy. And here we come to the issue of a realignment and the real stumbling block to a realignment and an impeachment that could be about something much more. If the Democrats were a party genuinely interested in realignment, they would be doing a few things. Not only would they want to win elections, but they'd want to shatter the Republican Party. I don't quite see the political forces necessary to turn these political battles of impeachment into a larger question of the social standing of citizens. But sometimes those necessary forces are summoned to our surprise through the very fact of struggle or limited political battle. If it comes to impeachment, that would be my hope. And that's my hope, too. Briefly, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig if you like what we are doing here. This podcast is freely available to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay, because those of you who can afford to do so, help us out. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. And one other thing, if you would like to meet with fellow dig listeners to discuss some of the books discussed here on the dig and then discuss said books with their authors on Zoom, join a dig book club. Next book up is Dig Senior Advisor Thea Riofrancos's Resource Radicals. To join up, go to thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. That's thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Okay, here's Nikhil Paul Singh and Joe Lowndes. Nikhil Paul Singh is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and faculty director of NYU's prison education program. His most recent book is Race in America's Long War. Joe Lowndes is a professor of political science at the University of Oregon, a member of United Academics AAUP AFT Local 3209, and the author with Daniel Martinez Hosang of Producers, Parasites, Patriots. Race in the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. I interviewed Lowndes and Daniel Martinez-Hosang about just that book a while back. I will put a link in the show notes. Joe Lowndes and Nikhil Singh, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Hi, Dan. It's great to be, great to be back. The ongoing debate on the left over how to characterize Trumpism has continued as a mob of his followers stormed the U.S. Capitol. On the one hand, what we saw was pretty unreal, unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. On the other hand, 
though, instead of trying to execute Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi, we saw these MAGA protesters aimlessly roaming around the building, live streaming themselves on social media, taking selfies, like as though they had wandered off from a guided tour. What just happened and what does it reveal about Trumpism? What what does it mean that I found myself simultaneously so horrified and so amused? The fact that it has a kind of a buffoonish quality to it, you know, kind of comical and, you know, the guy with the buffalo, I don't know what, costume, cosplay, horns. There's parts of it that that feel really um, like this was, you know, inconsequential, that it was kind of a, you know, kind of a goofy prank as much as anything else in a certain way. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they easily and quickly breached the halls of the you know, U.S. Capitol and, and made their way into the Senate and House chambers while an Electoral College certification was going on. So in, in that sense, there's no avoiding that it was actually kind of a, a, a grave. And it, we can get back into this later, but you know, part of this is, is it wasn't kind of just a one-off thing. There have been stormings of state capitals happening over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, quite seriously, and say in our state capital here in, in Oregon, it happened twice before Wednesday, and then again on Wednesday. It's happened in Idaho, it's happened in a number of states. And so there's kind of in some ways kind of a, it would be too strong to say a coordinated strategy, but, you know, kind of runners up to this, which are um, inspired by uh, different organizations and um, different kind of networks of people who are trying to advance a certain kind of, you know, both politics and political theater. Nikhil, what's what's your take? Mike Davis wrote, quote, yesterday's sacrileges in our temple of democracy. Oh, poor defiled city on the hill, etc. Constituted an insurrection only in the sense of dark comedy. What was essentially a big biker gang dressed as circus performers and war surplus barbarians, including the guy with a painted face posing as horned bison in a fur coat, stormed the ultimate country club, squatted on Pence's throne, chased senators into the sewers, casually picked their noses in rifled files, and, above all, shot endless selfies to send to the dudes back home in white people's country. Otherwise, they didn't have a clue. What's your take? Thanks, Dan. Uh, and thanks, Joe. I I would say that um, that was pretty much my sense when I first saw it. And I've been trying to sort it out in my head ever since. This has obviously opened up all the questions that we've been debating about Trump and fascism, whether the language of a coup makes sense to describe his several week effort to overturn the election. Um, and it's, it's kind of re-strengthened the argument that people have made on the other side to me, I think generally, uh, where they say, well, yes, look, you see, this really is fascism. This really was an attempt at a coup, etc." And I think that my sense of it when I first saw it was similar to what Mike Davis just described, but also similar to you, Dan, in which I, I sort of I laughed when I first saw that photograph. I was like, you know, these guys are like these guys are like, let's take one for the grandkids. You know, look where we were. Look where we are. And I think now I, my position has sort of shifted a little bit as I've begun to read more and, and sort of look at this. Um, I think I think we really are caught between two different kinds of interpretations, which we're going to have to figure out how to get right. On the one hand, uh, and I think Joe put it well, but I think the way Joe put it also sort of illustrated the, the divide. On the one hand, cartoonish, ineffective, carnivalesque, uncoordinated, illustrating weakness, not strength. I mean, all of those things 
are what came out of this in some sense. Um, the right was probably damaged by this. At least the institutional right was damaged by this. The GOP right, I think, was damaged by this. And you saw that in the way in which all the sort of institutions of power have lined up in condemnation and opprobrium. You know, and so it's it's you you have to look at that and sort of say, well, to what extent do we do, do we really judge this as a serious um, attempt to overthrow the American government? And should we be using that kind of language to describe it? On the other hand, we have seen something here that is clearly unprecedented in different ways. And I've usually avoided the language of unprecedented when talking about Trump, seeing him within the train of right-wing politics uh, uh, over many, many decades, right? But here you have a moment in which the kind of extra-parliamentary forces, the street forces in some ways, are being incited by the leader to do something that has not been done before. And so one of the questions I have, and I think it's a question that, again, we have to get right, we have to answer correctly, and it might take some time to do do so, is how to really assess these forces, um, how to really assess the so-called mob or the, or the mass base of Trumpism. Uh, in this moment. And, you know, some people have made the argument in the last couple of days that there were some really serious people in that group, you know, who were intent on doing real harm, you know, and I, I haven't been able to confirm any sense in myself that that is true from what I've read. Uh, but, you know, the pictures of the guy with restraints, kind of military style um, individuals that um, that aren't the kind of ludic comic figures, but actually maybe the more sort of hardened, organized, far-right militants who are also part of this group. Now, thus far, I think what we've seen in, in, in far-right militancy of the most dangerous kind in this period has been the the stochastic kind of terror, kind of lone wolf attacks that are spectacular and violent, you know, and truly horrifying. I think we, we tend to look at what happened. I tend to look at what happened a couple of days ago as being very different from that. But then I sometimes wonder, you know, um, I, I do, I do have a doubt in my mind as, as I sit here talking to you right now, whether we're seeing an evolution of this into something something else. I'm really averse to the kind of alarmism, and I want to talk about that, um, that, that kind of inflates the, the sort of dangers we're facing from the far right. But I do wonder, um, you know, whether we're also seeing a kind of evolution of some of these groups into something, something more significant. You know, obviously, when it came down to it, Mitch McConnell certainly did not want to cross this Rubicon. And more importantly, the U.S. military certainly didn't want to. But should we be worried about conditions conceivably deteriorating enough that it that it could happen? Does the left wing kind of mockery of the notion that the far right could pose such a threat, which I, you know, in various moments uh, engage in myself, does it rely on a certain, ironically, on a certain form of American exceptionalism? R Richard Seymour writes, quote, the fact that today's desperate effort to subvert liberal constitutional law will probably fizzle out largely reflects the incohate state of this phase of fascism's development. What we've been seeing over the last few years are speculative attempts, experimental forays, laying the cultural and organizational preliminaries for the mainstreaming of a violent extra-parliamentary right. 
Had the results been even closer than they were, mark you, these protests would be much bigger and more dangerous. A crucial reason why these protests are thousands strong and not tens of thousands strong is that the outcome was conclusive enough to be demoralizing. This is inchoate fascism, fascism in its experimental speculative phase, in which it is forming a coalition of minoritarian popular forces with elements in the executive and the repressive wing of the state. It would be devastatingly stupid, complacent beyond belief, to expect U.S. democracy to remain st- sufficiently stable in the coming years to deny this incipient fascism more opportunities to congeal and grow. Joe, what's what's your take? Part of what's at issue here in the kind of divide and in, in, interpretive frameworks that, that Nikhil mentioned is the use of the word fascism itself, which has become kind of something that people get stuck on in terms of how to define this moment or how to relate this moment to past moments. So, you know, I, whether or not this is inchoate fascism, I think Richard Seymour's piece describes, a, you know, kind of a movement that's kind of, you know, lurching and taking steps forward and trying to figure itself out and, and you know, finding opportunities, falling back, finding new opportunities. In some ways, the last four years have looked like that, you know, you know, the Unite the Right rally with the alt-right kind of coming out into the streets for the first time in a real way, August 2017, turned out to be a big mistake for them. And they kind of, for the most part, it was white nationalism itself was discredited and they went back off the streets. Uh, And and a number of the organizations that were involved with that kind of fell into disrepair. The Traditional Workers Party, Identity Europa, which finally changed its name and rebranded itself. And various other neo-Nazi groups, Andrew Anglin from Stormfront, you know, came out and said, well, this was, this was a mistake and we, we are not ready for this yet. But then what happened over the next couple of years was kind of a, um, you know, a, a reconsolidation of forces, uh, partly through previously unconnected groups like paramilitary organizations around Ammon Bundy, uh, along with the Proud Boys and other, you know, local and regional formations like the Patriot prayer, prayer group here in Portland, you know, they, they kind of reconsolidated around uh, an authoritarian nationalism and a pro-Trumpism, as opposed to kind of like a, a white nationalism that's, that's dreaming of a, a utopian ethno-state. Uh, and so, and they were able to actually put out thousands of people on the streets all summer in opposition to Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, and then coming into the fall, they were, you know, began, uh, you know, as I said before, to um, begin attacking state houses. The Bundys themselves, you know, first kind of smashed their way into the Idaho state house, uh, you know, over um, when it was discussing measures and legislation around COVID. So I think that there are different kinds of, you know, it's a very elastic and quickly changing far right, which is being expressed in different ways and which has connections to the executive branch and has connections to other, you know, obviously the executive branch, but also uh, other elements of, of national uh, security apparatus and national governance. So, I, you know, I think there is something here we have to look at, whether it's uh, impending fascism. I, I, I'm not sure I would use that term, but we are, I think we are on, a, um, on an altered political landscape of both left and right. And we have to kind of, I think, be attentive to what that means, both in terms of the threats and uh, opportunities it, it poses. 
One big problem for Trump, though, seems to be that he courted the wrong armed agents of the state. What what do you make of right wing politics under Trump finding itself in such close alliance with cops, at least at least until Wednesday when some of these Trumpists were fighting cops at the at the Capitol while being in such intense conflict with the FBI, the national security state, the military? I think the the police are really the 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 outer the outer line of 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 what I call decentralized despotism in the United States and and in some ways they end up representing kind of more localized iterations sometimes of white supremacy as well uh, whereas I think the national security apparatus really since the integration of the military in 1948, you know, has been really strongly reconditioned by, by liberal reformist civil rights doxa, you know, and, and I, I think that it's, it's a very different kind of formation in that sense. It's professionalized. It has a sense of itself as um, as integrate, integrative in, an, in, a, in a national, you know, in a kind of a nationalist way, but a nationalist way that orients towards a kind of dominant liberal sensibility, you know, rather than to this more revanchist edge. One of the things that I was I was thinking about um, yesterday or the last couple of days was, um, you know, when Rudy Giuliani led a police riot against the Dinkins administration on City Hall in in the 1990s, right before becoming mayor, you know, and when he became mayor, of course, he was a uh, you know, quite autocratic and really led the the sort of law and order surge that 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 has dominated. Uh, New York City for the last couple of decades, and his his partner, his partner there, his, uh, his main advisor Peter Powers was quoted as saying, "You know, finally we've got white guys back in charge of New York City," and there's a real kind of sense of sort of like outer borough sort of um, sort of male kind of macho white white energy there um, that Ju- Giuliani tapped into that's still a super super part of like like life in New York City and and Trump tapped into it and that's Trump's formation as well so Trump goes way way back with the cops you know and and his first foray into politics was you know calling for the execution of the the Central Park five which was of course uh, the the group of wrongly accused boys Boys at that time who who went to jail for a long time for a, a crime they didn't commit and who Trump you know at the time I, again called for their their execution and it really was a kind of moment in which he he kind of cast himself in that sort of law and order mold so there's a there's an arc of politics that sort of comes out of New York here that's I think really really interesting and the NYPD have been big supporters of Trump all these um, all these sergeants benevolent associations. Uh, are are kind of kind of pro Trumpist in, in, in this way, and um, the head of the SBA was on TV, I believe, with a QAnon mug behind him. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know, I think I think that's that's always been a kind of part of the of the kind of the kind of ethos and the and the and the version of populism Trump taps into. But the national security state has always been highly skeptical. You know, from the very beginning, uh, and obviously they're they're they've been a big part of the opposition to Trump internally. They've they've never really come round, I think, and and so so he didn't master those forces, uh, and he tried to, but he really failed. Uh, and one of the questions I, I certainly have is is whether the dispensations of the national security state would shift. You know, if there was the perception that there was a much stronger left opposition in the country. 
Um, I think I think that's that. Like if this was like if this conflict was over Bernie's inauguration. Yeah, it would be a much it would it would potentially be a much a much different set of set of questions that they would be facing. So so I don't really know. But I, I don't want to get too too far off, um, you know, on a tangent here. I, 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 I sort of remain pretty much in the camp that. Uh, that's that the right is a weak force and not a strong force in the United States. And that includes the institutional right. Um, and it includes the far right kind of street fighting groups. Uh, I, I don't think they have um, scale and coordination um, on the street um, of the kind that the kind of the, the scariest scenarios um, depict. And I don't think that their institutional ties are very stable I mean clearly they're, they they they're making inroads into the House of Representatives but it but it does remain to be seen how much the institutional Republican Party now tries to reconsolidate itself against some of these forces and by the institutional Republican Party I don't just mean the kind of the kind of elders and sort of party leaders but I also mean obviously the the funders and the backers and the people in in groups like the Chamber of Commerce which has come down very very hard on on Trump and 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 also the the the, the Trumpists themselves you know I think whether they can continue to rally forces both within the party and outside the party around themselves in the coming period seems to me to be a very open question. Uh, my my sense is the Trump brand has has peaked, and we're going to see it see it now start to start to fade and fall. And the people who ha- who thought they could step into that breach and and sort of you know maybe catch the falling star and sort of sort of then rise again you know people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz right now they look like they've kind of incinerated their careers it's it's not clear that that's the case but it's it's really a big hit to them um what's happened and so i think that should also tell us something about the balance of forces in this moment and I think we have to look realistically at the balance of forces in this moment if we're going to like get the right analysis of what to do and where to go. And I think that the as alarming as some of the the things that happened two days ago, and 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 again, I opened by by expressing some of my my concerns of things that I've heard that don't seem verified to me. Uh, about kind of sort of right wing violence um, and its its potential to scale up, um, but I but I don't think that that's that's really where the action is going to be. I mean, it could well be that we'll see more right wing violence of the kind of stoch- the stochastic kind. I mean, I hate that word, but but the the kind of more random and aleatory expressions of this kind of violence is very very possible that we'll see a lot more of this in the coming period. Uh, but I also think what's even more likely is that we're going to see, um, you know, intensified repression that that is embraced uh, by all parts of the, the the ruling order. Biden himself said, himself said today, I think that uh, he wants to pass a you know a major piece of domestic anti-terrorism legislation, identifying the events the other day as terrorism. And really, that's in the trajectory of, of, of exactly the kind of movements we've seen over the last 20 years within the national security state. Which, speaking of Eamon Bundy, which you mentioned earlier, Joe, reminds me of a lot of the liberal and even left reaction to the occupation of the Oregon Wildlife Refuge, which was sort of calling for a national a, a police crackdown as, as somehow in the interests of, of racial equality and proportionality. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll see that again. And of course, you know, what happens when you ramp up security states, you know, legislation and policy, it's, it always redounds on the, on the left and anti-war movements and uh, other struggles. So that, I, you know, that I think is definitely the case. And, and that, you know, that, that brings us to another conversation about what's then the best direction for the, for the left in this moment. But, I, you know, I, this question of like what, you know, how weak the right is and how large its numbers are is, is complicated because I'm not sure it's just a question of numbers. Right. You can you can actually you can achieve a lot with not a lot of people. Right. You know, you can you can you can take over a lot of state houses with not a lot of people, which is what's been happening the last few weeks. And you can, you know, have a movement that has gets a lot of media attention and which which sparks the imagination of of broader uh, elements of the public. And so it's you know what this means and what this is going to turn into is is I, I don't think by any means clear, but if we're talking about the the relative strength of the right, it, the question does come back uh, in part to, you know, as Nikhil mentioned, the Republican Party, and uh, and what the relationship of this right is to the party, and you know whether or not we need another kind of charismatic leader to step into the breach and take the torch from Trump. I think is not necessarily what's going to decide it. You know, the one thing about right-wing populism in the United States is that it's not, it's not always focused around a leader. You can think of the Tea Party movement, for instance, um, which conservative to libertarian to far-right to nativist to openly neo-Confederate racist elements to it. And there was no real, you know, you could say Sarah Palin was maybe kind of a nominal leader of the Tea Party or, you know, one or two other people. But it was, the, the movement itself was decentralized and you know, partly funded from above, like the Koch brothers, uh, Americans for Prosperity. But a lot of that, a lot of the action was grassroots um, and happened state and local areas. And so I think that, you know, the, the staying power of the right over the next couple of years partly depend on what happens within right-wing organizations, within far-right organizations, which are kind of growing and establishing firmer roots at the moment, but also are connected to state and local Republican parties. I mean, it may be, it's slightly more exaggerated here, but, you know, the, the Oregon Republican Party has been, for the last four years, closely tied to paramilitary organizations. Um, they have, you know, Multnomah County, which is the, one of the counties that, that Portland is within, has used militia members as, as private security. They, militia members have, you know, vowed to protect state legislators from uh, the state police when Republicans refuse to come back into session to vote on a, you know, on a, on a climate change bill. And, you know, so there's things like that. And, and of course, there are versions of this in other, it's, it's more likely to happen in Midwestern and Western states. But there's a sense that if we do have kind of a diminishing Republican Party in terms of numbers, in terms of electoral strength, it may become more of an authoritarian party that relies more on its connections to armed elements and more radicalized elements. And I, you know, I don't pretend to know what any of that looks like, but we're seeing versions of it now become, you know, becoming elaborated. You know, one of the things that happened here in, in Salem the last couple of weeks was there was a standoff when uh, right-wing and far-right protesters, you know, Proud Boys, Three Percenters, Oath Keepers busted into the state house here and had a standoff with police, you know, sprayed bear spray into the, you know, face of state troopers. And these were, these were armed militants. Uh, it turned out that the, uh, it was a uh, Republican legislator who propped open the door to let him in. And so now there's this question of like what, you know, what the relationship is between uh, the, you know, 
even sitting legislators and, and, and these movements. So, you know, I, I think if it is the case that the right, the institutional right is weakening in this moment, it may need to depend on elements further out. And for that matter, you know, it's not nothing that tens of millions of people thought this was a stolen election and that a majority of Republicans thought that the uh, takeover of the Capitol was a good idea the other day. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, these aren't people who are necessarily going to become put on Kevlar themselves and, you know, strap on sidearms and get out there. But this is a changed set of circumstances from anything we've seen on the right in a very long time. And I think the last time, you know, there are regional versions of the broader connection of the right and far right with uh, with sitting legitimized political actors that, you know, the citizens councils in Southern states during the 1950s and 60s would be the most recent example. But, you know, in the 1930s, there was a you know, proliferation of, of fascist organizations, silver shirts, brown shirts, black shirts, German-American Bund, whatever. But they were significantly confronted by and had to compete with um, a radical labor movement for, for members. And so I, that's another thing I think it's probably worth talking about is not just how to conceive of the threat of actual members of far-right organizations, but what it means to compete for the sympathies and political allegiance of people in this country towards a different kind of, different kind of vision, given, let's say, the relative weakness of the left, I think. Joe, a follow-up question on kind of the, the, the far, far right, the militia right that keeps coming up. I heard recently a recording of, of, of Amen Bundy saying something that kind of shocked me. He said, quote, if you think that somehow Black Lives Matter is more dangerous than the police, you must have a problem. If you think Antifa is the one that's going to take your freedom, you must have a problem in your mind. What do you make of Bundy's surprising solidarity with BLM and Antifa? And what does that say about where certain factions of the, the militia movement are right now compared to the right-wing formations that have ended up being much more prominent under under Trump, like the Proud Boys, whose whole MO is fighting BLM and Antifa in the streets. And then and then relatedly, where are Richard Spencer and the self-declared white supremacists and Nazis who seem to be such a powerful force on the right until Charlottesville? It seems like there's a bit of a there are a number of kind of divides that aren't so visible to to people outside of the far right. The Charlottesville was, uh, you know, an interesting moment because immediately the dominant interpretation was that these were, you know, a bunch of odious Nazis that no one wanted anything to do with. I mean, besides Trump himself, you know, even Steve Bannon at the time was calling them, you know, losers and people that, you know, that should be shunned and no one should have anything to do with. And it was kind of, you know, as I said before, it was it, the alt-right kind of collapsed in the wake of that. James Fields was, um, you know, the, the killer of Heather Heyer uh, was, you know, in no sense a sympathetic character for anyone, you know, on the right outside the white supremacist right. And which is, you know, was interesting. And so it looked like for a moment that this was the movement had been discredited. But then if you fast forward a couple of years, you have a you have Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17 year old kid who murdered two people and wounded a third with with his gun at um, an anti Black Lives Matter counter protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. This is, you know, uh, an egregious murder happens on the streets and Rittenhouse is almost immediately framed as a, you know, kind of a, almost a Norman Rockwell figure of civic nationalism. You know, there's, there's pictures of him, cheery face, scrubbing graffiti off walls. And, and here he is just trying to take care of his community. And, 
you know, and it's, for, it's not just Tucker Carlson who was singing his praises, but members of the local GOP, the state GOP, and then national Republican senators. And it's interesting because he was framed as not a white supremacist in kind of the, 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 in the ghoulish sense we might think of someone like Dylan Roof, but as kind of a, you know, um, a figure who's just trying to preserve law and order against the thuggery of Black Lives Matter. So then race gets, you know, where white supremacists are, are focused particularly on race in a direct sense, which is never, in post-civil rights America, it's just impossible to do. Uh, Rittenhouse is, is seen as someone who's not, he's not a racist. He's opposing Black Lives Matter and Antifa because these are thuggish, communist, socialist, anarchist organizations. Who, and he executed white people. And yeah. he executed white people. Well, you know, Heather Heyer was white too, but the, the uh, um, uh, but you know, there's, he actually, he's in a moment of a militia movement that saw itself as Trumpist, which the white supremacists did not do in the same way. You know, I was at a, um, an American Renaissance meeting. It's a white supremacist kind of organization two weeks before Unite the Right. And all the, you know, Richard Spencer and Nathan D'Amigo from, you know, Identity Europa and all these other folks are there. And they all were quite critical of Trump before. They were like, they did not see themselves as his people. This militia movement, which has emerged on the streets of the last year or so, were strong, ardent, nationalist Trump supporters and really avowedly anti-racist in their literature. If you go to the Three Percenters website, the first thing you'll see is they say they are not, in all caps, white supremacist or white nationalist. If you go to the Oath Keepers website, first thing you see is they say, we come in all colors. And a picture of a, uh, or a YouTube video of a black Oath Keepers member. So there's, some, there's a way in which race gets displaced uh, as something that they wanna make sure they are seen as civic nationalists, not racial nationalists, even though their movement over the summer was really animated against Black Lives Matter. But in terms of the other part of that, which is connected to the first, Eamon Bundy actually was going to speak at a Black Lives Matter protest earlier in the summer. And then the more ardent white supremacist uh, elements of his um, milieu were like, no, you can't do that. You're going to discredit all of us <laughs> and yourself. And, and then he backed out from doing it. But even prior to that, back during the Malheur takeover, uh, there were, when uh, Lavoy Finnegan was shot by the FBI, he was one of the members of the Malheur takeover. There were uh, there were members of this organ this kind of group doing the you know hands up don't shoot protest uh, that Black Lives Matter had 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 popularized and there was even uh, cooperation between Black Lives Matter and these militia adherents over uh, a bill in the Oregon State Legislature around um, whether or not cops accused of shooting would have to have their um, names published and so there is you know there is some you know kind of gray area in there. And I think actually, you know, this is what Dan Hosang and I, a lot of our book was about, but there is a lot of complicated stuff going on with race. And I think it will come to matter more in a, you know, increasingly non-white country. And, and there are other elements of the far right or fascism or whatever, which don't just turn on race, of course, but glorified violence, masculinity, authoritarianism, anti-communism, you know, a bunch of other things. So it's, I think this question of race gets complicated in those ways. Yeah, Nikhil, one of the most surprising things about this year, particularly for me since I published a book on it, is that immigration, which powered Trump's 2016 election and also Republicans' failed 28 midterm campaigns, was just suddenly almost nowhere to be seen in right-wing rhetoric. Trump 2020 was all Black Lives Matter, and even maybe more so, I think revealingly even more so, about Antifa and about law and order being the solution to both. What, what does this reveal about the dynamism of right-wing politics? 
Yeah, I don't know if the word dynamism is the one I would use, but it it definitely reveals that we're in this kind of very weird, weird space. You know, there people were throwing around the word surreal a lot the last couple of days, and I, I always say to people when I start talking, you know, like our job as as like scholars, academics, intellectuals, to some to some degree, people who are formally interested in politics, we try to we try to impose a kind of coherent interpretation on things. But American politics is so much weirder on the ground than than <laughs> than, than anybody really truly realizes. There's a try canvassing you if know, you don't understand. Oh that. yeah, exactly. And I think <laughs> you know and I think it has something to do with the kind of um the extra institutional disorder and suffering and uh, ways in which people are just scraping by in this country. So there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of desperation uh, on the one hand, and and there's a lot of people trying to cling to what they have. Uh, there's there's a lack of faith in certainly in government, but there's a lack of a sense that we are getting reliable information a lot of times, which obviously helps proliferate the already existing kind of conspiratorial mindset that's out there. So I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot more fluidity in the political landscape than we often think, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm reluctant in many many ways to overstate the kind of the kind of coherence and strength of the the right let alone the the far right i mean we all know on the left as we've been trying to organize for for many years and i think the left in some ways is stronger than it has been in recent years in this country but we are also quite weak in many ways as we have found in relationship to these very resilient kind of centrist forces that that we have collective action problems we have scale problems we have problems breaking through the fog of polarization we have problems actually uniting natural constituencies and by natural i mean constituencies um who really share a kind of uh, economic hardship uh, sense of disfranchisement and humiliation in this country you know and i do think some of those people are now on the right you know in some sense but i don't think that they are forever lost to left politics and i think it's a real mistake to think that that's true and i think i see a lot of people making that mistake now again um, and I think we should really know better. I mean, the, the woman who was executed by the police, you know, in the Capitol, this Ash, Ashley Babbitt, who is a veteran, I mean, yet another person killed by the police this year, you know, whose name won't be sounded at rallies because um, rallies on our side, you know, because because she was attending a Trump rally. You know, she voted for Obama, from what I've learned Um when Obama was running in 2012. So you think in eight years, she's she's now a hardcore right winger? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I don't think the conversion really works that way for people politically in this country. There definitely are hardcore militants. And I think that that is a real question. I mean, it's, it's going to be a question for, for the FBI, you know, I think as they begin to investigate some of this. Um, and it's going to be a question for us insofar as uh, do we really want to cheer on the FBI as they do that. That's a that's an that's a question. You know, I, I'm I'm not not necessarily answering it right now, but I think uh, that's real. But in terms of the the wider milieu of the right and how um, how they're able to manipulate kind of friend enemy politics, that has shifted a lot over the last uh, twenty or thirty years. I mean, 
I, I, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the the, the potential for Sharia law and let state legislatures passing bills against Sharia law. So that's sort of off the table. Immigration's kind of off the table. I I think that uh, they they actually have a lot of trouble now um, with the discourse of law and order because I think law and order is now uh, seen by by significant pluralities, if not majorities of Americans, as having been overly harsh and punitive in this country over 30 years and having produced uh, a regime of punitive policing and mass incarceration that has been tremendously damaging to the country. There's plenty of people on the right who see that as well, right? So, so I think the, the search for an enemy on the right is always, I think, central to their politics. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying maybe the friend enemy uh, is is a as, as you know as Carl Schmitt, the famous kind of right wing political thinker, uh, made it central to his political philosophy. Maybe it's maybe it's also central to the left. I think it's less important to the left to find an enemy. I think that's partly the way we distinguish what we do. Hopefully, as we actually try to think of how we construct a general interest without polarizing different kinds of uh, forces. But I think that the right has a very difficult time getting traction without it. And now I think they're fighting on a lot of different fronts and they're very, very confused and, and there isn't a coherent project there. Uh, and, and they're going to need to find one um, if they're going to move forward as, as, a, as a kind of a right-wing party or they're going to have to kind of uh, moderate in certain ways. You know, and that moderation, I think, will involve uh, trying to recompose a very different kind of relationship internally to um, the, to to their base. Um, and I think the 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 possibilities of that were presented to them by Trump and 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 in some ways by George Bush before them. I mean, Trump has broadened the base of the Republican Party. You know, he has brought in more voters of color in the last election. And I want to talk about that more in a minute. So, so Trump is a bit of a paradoxical figure for them because on the one hand, they, they're, the institutional Republican Party is terrified that they cannot win national elections. They needed somebody be able to be able to bring in more votes. Right. And on the other hand, they've pursued a strategy of voter suppression in different places. And they can't quite decide because voter suppression, obviously committing full throatedly to voter suppression, obviously puts them in a kind of anti-democratic, illiberal, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of f- a framework that risks really fundamentally discrediting them, since Americans still seem to care about elections um, in large numbers. And we can see that that's, that that's actually growing, right? So they have to really decide, do they want to go the illiberal route or do they want to, do they want to try to compete for votes? Then they're, they're, kind of, they're kind of in a bind because uh, when they compete for votes, sort of seriously, I think they're finding now that they're they're being outvoted, right? And I think the last election is a bit of a watershed. What happened in Georgia is very significant. Even if Trump did enlarge the base of the Republican Party to some degree, they lost a really key state that is in, an indicator, I think, maybe of the way in which the electoral map, which we've been imagining would change in this country, is actually finally changing. And the funny thing that might happen in the coming years is you start to see arguments about the Electoral College actually flip, where Democrats were mad about the Electoral College when Trump won. But if the state of Texas goes blue in the next eight years, you know, which could could happen, I mean, Republicans will not be able to win a national election in this country. 
country for a while. They're going to have to find votes somewhere. So I think that the, these are these are actually real questions. Huge amounts of money gets poured into this. Huge institutional interests are at stake. And I think we need to be able to be clear in our understanding of what those are and how they're working in order to think about the kind of politics that is possible for us on our side. You know, and I think that is one of the reasons why the, the getting getting sort of sort of magnetized by far right spectacles can be um, can be of limited value for us going forward. You know, I mean, I, again, I'm not saying I, I really don't want to sound Pollyannish. People got mad at me some, a little bit yesterday because they thought I was um, downplaying the violence or downplaying the significance of what happened in the Capitol. You know, and I I I, I do reflect when people get mad at me, not because I'm worried about people getting mad at me, but because I actually think we we have to try to listen to our differences and try to understand what we actually think. But I I haven't yet been convinced that that's where the action is. I think the action is much more in places like Georgia and what we saw happen in Georgia this past week. And if that, if that can be replicated, elsewhere, it's going to really potentially be be a very interesting period for us in, in thinking about what is possible politically on the left of center. I think a lot of what Nikhil says is right. I do wonder about this question. The term far-right spectacle, I think, in some ways may um, elide the fact that there was, there's connective tissue between people who, you know, who stormed the Capitol and members of the House of Representatives, members of the Senate, you know, people in the executive branch, you know, that was, that connects this, this far right spectacle all the way to the top, to the right, to the very center of the Republican Party. So I think, you know, for me, that gets to the question that Nikhil rightly raises of strategies of illiberalism. If it is the case that Republicans can no longer really rely on, on electoral victories. And I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure we're there yet. I mean, that you know, Biden won, but Democrats did miserably, you know, down ticket all over the place. There, the, the use of both electoral, anti-electoral strategies or counter-electoral strategies or anti-liberal strategies is something that's always been a hallmark of, you know, right-wing movements that eventually come to power. You know, there, to say, and one of the things that seems to be uniting the right or uniting Republican voters right now is the idea that this was a stolen election, that liberal democracy um, is a failed project at the moment, that it did not serve them, that they got they that they got rooked by it. And there's something kind of radicalizing about that. The, the belief of tens of millions of people that their candidate did not win because the system was rigged is kind of, you know, is not such great news for American institutions in terms of how people are going to respond to this over time. And and as as Nikhil said, you know, strategies of voter suppression are what the Republicans use at the top, but you know these are there are various versions of a denial of the vote, which go from voter suppression tactics, which we know of from you know everything from you know new voter ID laws, or starting with the Repub- the Supreme Court's striking down of um, the Voting Rights Act, to now uh, all these uh, shackled forms of voting possibilities in a number of states, all the way down to uh, these you know these voting challenges that happen you know, in state after state to the idea that now you've got uh, armed people challenging in the, you know, in state legislatures and on the streets, the, the results of elections means that something about, you know, the stability of liberal democracy and its institutions seems to me to be much more, at least at the moment, um, you know, uh, more 
ambiguous or fluid or weak than, than it has been for some time. And if you think about that, if you've got tens of millions of people in that position, and then the, the radical spread of wild conspiracy theories, which I also think is new. I think it's QAnon stuff. Obviously, the United States has been in the grip of conspiracy theories since the American Revolution and before. But, you know, this, this is something kind of new. And there were QAnon uh, candidates that ran for the Senate and House all over the country. And really people who are, who are occupying an, an absolutely alternate reality. And so th- under those conditions, I, again, I don't think fascist movements just come from below. I'm, I'm with Carl Polanyi that, you know, you need state actors above who are going to choose authoritarian leaders at moments of crisis of, uh, crises of capitalism and crises of, of statecraft. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm not so sanguine that, that the center can hold for that matter. It's not clear to me where centrist Democrats would find themselves on some of these questions if we had a robust left really challenging the uh, the bases of financialized economy. If you know, if we actually had a left that really did challenge the main interests that are the ones that are actually really looting the capital every day, fire, real estate, energy interests, um, that you know, you could see parts of the Democratic center turn to the right and far right. You know, which is what also happens classically in moments when you get forms of far right rule. So it's, you know, I, I think trying to keep a sense of, and I think it's very hard to do. And I think Nikhil is right that we ought to try to get the analysis right. But there are really a lot of moving parts, which involve kind of guesswork about, you know, the, the resilience of extant institutions and social movements where actors are and in a moment of both, you know, the greatest wealth gap in American history. Uh, and, um, you know, pandemic. So it seems like there's, but Joe, but Joe, but Joe, I'm sorry. Isn't, isn't the, isn't the system being rigged like a universal? I know that there's this, this specific moment now of this election and the sort of the sort of the lost cause rhetoric that's kind of build up around it potentially, but you know, it was rigged against Bernie, you know, we, we were saying that many people were saying that. I mean, I, I, I think I said probably a version of it um, in my own way. I'm sure Dan said a version of it in his own way. People thought Trump won unfairly, maybe maybe illegally in 2016. I would say that that sentiment probably ran into the millions. The, the degradation of the social media ecologies that now spread disinformation with such tremendous ease and and kind of kind of viral half information and um and 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 various kinds of alarms and 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 sort of scares that maybe last a few days and gin people up and then disappear i mean all of this is kind of um you know sort of part of the the kind of wider ecosystem that we are now navigating in different ways and i i totally agree with you that it's a it's a it's a very very challenging and difficult one and it occurs in the context of of the greatest rigging being the sort of uh, continued impoverishment you know on the on the kind of what we would call the labor share of the ec- economic surplus the growing concentration of wealth the fact that we've seen absolutely insane rise in asset valuations owned by a fraction of the people in this country uh, while everybody else feels poorer, more desperate, more precarious, um, including people who have jobs um, and and maybe even who have a certain amount of economic stability right now. So, 
what you're describing to me is is a kind of a wider condition that many of us have tried to talk about and identify and try to think of what kind of political struggle and strategy and approach is adequate to that condition. So what I what I sometimes don't fully kind of get on board with or 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 want to maybe maybe less than I used to even is is attributing it um, sort of in some kind of some kind of primary causal way to to a certain kind of right-wing politics. I do think the right-wing politics that exists in this country has in many ways led us to this moment historically, um, for sure. And there's a long kind of trajectory there. I, so I, I'm, I'm partly, I'm partly there, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm much more uh, critical now, I think, um, than, than, than maybe I even was before. And I was already pretty critical of the way in which the, the centrist democratic forces in this country who are powerful, right? And who are actually now ascendant also operate. You know, and I'm not trying to draw like a both sides sort of false equivalence here, that it's the same and that they all do the same things, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a degree to which there is a tremendous amount of collusion between the two parties uh, around some really, really, really big things that are structural and that we seem to have a tremendous difficulty changing and that neither the far left or the far right or even the even the moderate left or the moderate right uh, makes much of a dent in, you know, when it comes. And you're talking about the forever wars, the carceral state and neoliberalism. Yeah, basically. Well, what are the consequences of liberals and anti-Trump conservatives refusing to recognize that the, these more ordinary roots of Trumpism? Because I read a few liberal essays on Trump's authoritarianism to prep for this interview and not one mentioned the war on terror or the carceral state, or more remarkably, just even tried to make any sort of argument for how the social basis for Trumpism emerged. And I think the most astounding thing I read was an interview with Jill Lepore, who had this to say, quote, these kind of, you know, insurrectionists, some of them armed, seizing and occupying the Capitol building in the nation's capital, this comes straight out of the pages of the history of other countries. So how other countries Failed states have restored order and rearranged themselves into a condition of political stability and the full consent of the governed. Those are where the lessons are to be found, frankly, not in the pages of American history. Trump is unprecedented, and will and it will always be a mistake to try to predict what can be done to answer his depredations by looking to the past. You know, I just, um, just to respond and to kill quickly, I think, you know, obviously, um, those of us on the left have always seen this system as entirely rigged. The question is whether when people on the right now see themselves in opposition to liberal democracy, they have, they have powerful forces that they, that will want to enlist them. We, on the left, we've got nobody, right? There's no, you know, there's not like centrist Democrats who are going to sign on to, uh, you know, any kind of a radical left vision of what we would like to see. Right. I mean, we, you know, obviously, they are not even going to let Bernie Sanders through the door. So I, but so my my point is not that there's just there is now electoral rigging happening. It's always happened, right? I mean, there's nothing. There's not. There's in no sense that the United States ever existed as a democracy. The question is what you know what the right's able to mobilize. And this question about I think your important point about the center, uh, Nikhil, and this and the strength of the Democratic center. I actually I I wonder what happens under conditions of 
more economic instability and potentially more, therefore, political instability. What happens if you know the neoliberal center can't hold in the same way? What happens if those those forces are discredited by the all the conditions we're describing of empire, of the carceral state, of uh, greater impoverishment? What happens to the center then? I mean, you know, there's, these are also figures that can list rightward under these conditions. You know, so I mean, part of it is like what happens when you've got a system that I'm not sure Bidenism is necessarily that durable itself. Yeah, I guess I'll just real, really quick, and I'll c- come back to Jill Lepore in a in a second. Is um, is to say that yeah, I think that's right about Biden. Bidenism being a kind of a, a again a kind of a holding a holding action, but what you just said, Joe, is exactly what they say to us all the time. They basically say it's only us or it's the far right, right? They say it's kind of it's kind of it's we're all that stands between you and you know and the deluge. And in some ways, I think the the strategic choice of Biden really reflected that. You know, it was kind of like it's Biden or fascism, and you know, I think that's not the right way to think about what's going on. It's not that it's 100% wrong or that it was ineffective, because I think a a, a second Trump term would have been horrifying and disastrous in so many ways. But very few presidents were presented with the kind of opportunities for authoritarianism that Trump was presented with, and he really didn't take them. I mean, he he had a major pandemic, and he kind of said he had major street protests you know he 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 kind of gestured at authoritarianism at various moments but he never could really either pull the pull the levers because he can't didn't know how to operate them um, or he didn't really want to in certain ways and this doesn't even get into the realm of foreign policy where he pulled back many many times i think from the things that people were pushing him to do so again, I'm not. This is not an apology for Trump. This is just to say, let's look. Let's look very clearly at everything that's going on here. Uh, I think the governing order is absolutely in crisis. So it's not just the Democrats or the Republicans, and no one has a sense of kind of a clear direction, you know, or a way of imagining how to kind of pull all the forces together at this moment. And the crisis has obviously been long in its gestation. Okay, so let me let me just stop stop with that, and and just pick up on on where where Dan kind of left off in asking whether we're really off the grid, you know, of American history, you know, and I think that is a, a very odd thing to say, given what we have been through in this country at different points in time. Uh, particularly if you're a historian. <laughs> particularly if you're a historian, um, it, it's it, at Harvard. It's, it's a it's a it's it, you know a, a very good historian, a very interesting historian in many ways. Um, but but I think that the the desire to produce consensual narratives is so strong in a kind of um, a kind of liberal kind of his, historiography, and and all of that is always kind of retrospective and kind of smoothing out the edges. Uh, but, you know, we don't have that anymore. We don't have consensus and we don't have a, a, a clear direction of, of where this country is going. And, and I think that's also opened up a sense of the past that is different, that, that things were much more jagged, unstable and conflictual and contentious in the past as well. And I think that that, that it doesn't hurt us to see that. 
Um, it just means that there's no easy recourse in this moment for, for kind of finding answers in the past either. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is On Edward Said, Remembrance of Things Past, by Hamid Dabashi. Edward Said was a towering figure in post-colonial studies and in the struggle for justice in his native Palestine, best known for his critique of Orientalism in Western portrayals of the Middle East. As a public intellectual, activist, and scholar, Said forever changed how we read the world around us and left an indelible mark on subsequent generations. Hamid Dabashi, himself a leading thinker and critical public voice, offers a unique collection of reminiscences, travelogues, and essays that document his own close and long-standing scholarly, personal, and political relationship with Said. In the process, they place the enduring significance of Edward Said's legacy in an unfolding context and locate his work within the moral imagination and environment of the time. On Edward Said, Remembrance of Things Past, by Hamid Dabashi, out now from Haymarket Books. Something that both of you had touched on a bit when in your back and forth was that the, the liberal resistance has made made Trump in the far right to be this uniquely unprecedented existential threat. And yet the same liberal resistance made Biden president, a guy who more than anything has pledged to return us to this golden age of bipartisan compromise and really showed on Wednesday, I think that he was entirely unable to speak to the moment. So if the right is so dangerous and it's using these counter-majoritarian institutions to, to unjustly attempt to rule over the majority, then why is it that liberal standard bearers clamor for bipartisanship instead of demanding dramatic structural reforms like D.C. statehood that could seriously check the right's counter-majoritarian institutional power? What, what do you make of this incredible dissonance? Yeah, I mean, watching Biden the other day was just like, nauseating you know all i could think was <laughs> boy we're in trouble <laughs> the choice of biden from the very beginning is is really it's a it's a it's a symptom of our crisis as as much as it is anything else and you know liberal either liberal championing of biden or even to say that the choice of biden is something that staves off radical changes i think is are, are you know are both wrong headed and um i you know i think that we we shouldn't take any comfort in this. And I don't think we'll see partly if we are actually entering a period where there's continued strength on the right, what we'll see is the Biden administration tacking rightward. I mean, they may, you know, use repressive measures on elements of the uh, revolutionary far right. But I think, the, you know, they they will attempt to, um, and Biden has kind of, you know, essentially said as much. He wants to bind the nation's wounds by, you know, making gestures towards Republican voters who think the whole thing is a sham to begin with. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what else to say about Bidenism or Biden support or enthusiasm beyond that would be. 
Nikhil, what's your, your take? Ted Furtick wrote on Twitter, quote, the same people who threat inflate fascism to defend prerogatives of the radical imperial center are the people who will say that the good GOP can be separated from the bad and the good GOP must be negotiated with. Yeah, I, I think that the GOP needs to pay a big price and it's been hard to figure out how to exact that price. Um, I, I really do think they should go after people where they can. I think that the question of impeaching Trump again right now and making it impossible for him to even imagine or countenance another run for president, forcing people to go on record, I think I think they you have to in some ways fight a very hard fight, not toward some kind of bipartisan consensus around some some of these issues that are s- sort of really really non-negotiable. I don't really know uh, what Biden is going to do in the end. You know, he he is there to kind of talk a kind of language of reconciliation, uh, but the demands that are coming are are serious ones, and there does seem to be this sense now that you can spend money as a government without much consequence and much concern. Uh, which could really be significant. Um, I think, for example, if Trump had passed a big stimulus in the the kind of that he said he was talking about that the Republicans were were blocking, and maybe to some degree the Democrats weren't as interested in in the summer. I think if he had passed a bigger stimulus, he would have um, he would have probably won the election. The, the The CARES Act didn't make a significant difference to people. Uh, and I think that the 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 economic and public health questions are really the paramount questions of the next several months. Um, and so how the Democratic Party tackles those questions and whether they do it kind of aggressively um, in a way where the Republican Party is on the back foot and forced to acquiesce um because they're really afraid of of what could come both electorally you know in the in the kind of medium term but also in the kind of immediate backlash that they might face from from voters um it could be very effective but if they take a if they take a more moderate stance and kind of say well we're we're just we're just about kind of pushing compromise here wherever we can they're going to find themselves back in in the minority i think in 2022 and then this whole cycle gins up again I said so the reason they might they might take that that path is because um, they really aren't interested. You know, the, the centrist Democratic Party really really isn't interested. It, it doesn't understand its own interests in terms of any kind of popular kind of working majority. They really understand themselves to be catering to a kind of a new a new base. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because it really depends on who Biden sees as his base or who he would like to imagine his base is. Because one thing about the liberal Trump threat inflation framework is that it gives cover to and obscures the Democratic Party's active, eager since 2016. And and, and really, I mean, going back to the the 80s in various ways or or before Democratic Party's eager incorporation of a major part of the old Republican base that Republican radicalization is driving, which is affluent white suburbanites. And Lily Geismer and Matthew Lasseter had a great essay on this in Jacobin uh, earlier this week. But that means catering to affluent people's interests while relying on the racism of the right to keep voters of color voting Democrats, which we learned in November is not only deeply messed up, but but doesn't work. 
Yeah, I think a lot about this, again, a lot about this political landscape is being scrambled right now. And it's, it's, it's really very fluid. I do think that how the Democratic Party positions itself for whether it positions itself to try to become um, a more significant majoritarian party to break through some of the impasses of the last 20 or 30 years where we've been thinking about where and when is the realignment going to come. I don't have a lot of hopes that that's going to come from Bidenism, you know, or from Joe Biden or from Kamala Harris or from any of the current, current people. But I think events on the ground are going to start forcing um, a kind of a, a continued pressure for that kind of realignment. And similarly, I think the, the, the same pressures are operating on the Republican Party in this moment. And how do they begin to relate to a set of constituencies that are not no longer in the country club, you know, not even close, you know, and can you keep, can you keep beating that, that constituency into a fervor, you know, with a kind of, a kind of conspiratorial friend enemy type of politics, or will that always kind of end up producing a kind of a, a, a fringe element that's, that's too alienating to the normie voters, right? I mean, it's like they're both both parties are kind of battling over that, uh, over that sort of that sort of inchoate kind of middle of of, of everything. And, you know, I think our our challenge, you know, as as a kind of I think again a, a sort of a weaker a weaker force. You know, and we always use this I think fairly unsatisfactory language of kind of pushing left, right, uh, and and never push very much. Um, our strategy or our task, it seems to me, is to be prepared for the realignments, you know, to, to continue to do the various kinds of uh, organizing work, mobilizing work um, in various places that create that will create opportunities to have more victories, you know, and I think that that's obviously in itself a very vague statement to, to make, but it but it encompasses a lot potentially from the the terrain of kind of labor struggle to the the voter registration stuff that's been going on to the effort to kind of expand the electorate in a way that I think will be favorable if the Democrats can really pr- pursue policies. Um, in the economic sphere that redistribute means and benefits to the the, the greater majority of people and, and who, that support their employment and their public health, especially. Joe, you touched on this a bit earlier, but one of the most consequential things that happened last year was that Trump was not only overperformed what most anyone imagined, but that he was in particular able to win over a substantial new number of non-white voters to his still losing coalition, including, you know, in various places to various degrees, Latinos, Asians, black people, some groups like Mexican-Americans in the Rio Grande Valley, Latinos in South Florida, Vietnamese-Americans in Metro Los Angeles took huge lurches to the right. And so it's rather obvious that racism is core to Trumpism. But, But if that's a premise that we can all accept... It then leads to some big questions, specifically what sort of racist politics can be this racially inclusive? And and you and Daniel Martinez-Hosang explored just this sort of question in your book, Producers, Parasites, Patriots, which I discussed with you two on this podcast. What is going on? Yeah, probably a lot of things are going on at once. But, you know, what is clear is that, you know, racism is not just one you know, one thing or one discourse or one set of policies. And 
more than that, it's a set of interpretive frameworks that can that are open to various kinds of mobilization. You know that even in terms of events this week, Enrique Tario, the you know the current putative head of the Proud Boys, was arrested on Monday uh, with you know high-powered um, magazines uh, leading up to the events on Wednesday. He defines he's he's Cuban American, which which you know would logically put him you know in a right-wing camp in Florida. He describes himself as Afro-Cuban and draws on a lot of that in making his appeals about um, you know the the kind of capaciousness of the Proud Boys as a you know as a political formation. Part of you know as you explored in your own book, Dan, uh, part of how nativism can work is that you can have different. You can have different generations, you know, of of grandchildren of immigrants uh, against current immigrants, or you can have different people for whom nativism isn't necessarily a question, like Puerto Rican voters. You know, it, Trump did extraordinarily well among Puerto Ricans in uh, not just South Florida but Central Florida. And part of this then is is um is the ways in which I think again I think it's a really complicated question, but the ways in which race is attached to other either affective elements or economic elements or other things. So there is a gender gap in, you know, Trump is much better among Latinx men than, um, than women. He does better among African-American men than women. There's a way in which masculinity plays an important role in, in uh, you know, in Trump's vote. There, uh, there's a class obviously plays a role in, in how people uh, perceive not just their own racial position in the United States, but their racial position vis-a-vis others. So, th- you know, there's also cultural elements that evangelical Christianity obviously plays a-, a big role in. And, you know, kind of just kind of um, Americanism generally as kind of broadly an ideology uh, is always simultaneously inclusive and excluding. So, I, you know, there's a-, a lot there that I think that kind of liberal anti-racism misses in terms of who, you know, who, who is going to be open to what appeals. And part of it is a question is, part of the question is how did Trump do so well? But the other question is how did Democrats do as poorly as they did? Like what kind of appeals were not being made to Vietnamese American small business owners, for instance, or, you know, or other groups who, there was always a presumption that everybody's going to be on the side of Black Lives Matter. Everybody's going to be, you know, have the same position on George Floyd's murder. Everybody's going to, you know, have a, a position on, uh, Trump's, you know, crude forms of racialized language. And that's just not, you know, something, something that organizers in Arizona and Georgia never had the luxury to presume. Yes, exactly. They had to work it out on the ground as organizers and figure out uh, what's actually how to make uh, appeals for solidarity. And I think that this is then a question for the left as well of what we want to build. We're going to have to uh, be much more um, careful and thoughtful in terms of how we suture together uh, alliances and forms of interest, how we generate forms of shared and collective interests, I think. Uh, it's, it's complicated. In a, you know, on the one hand, we're an historically white supremacist, settler colonial society. On the other hand, there are um, people in, with, in all kinds of positions vis-a-vis that stuff who are going to have to come together in a, in a shared collective vision. I think that the Democratic Party imagines it's going; it can do one version of that. But I think we, like, we all see the uh, the great limitations in what Democrats have done nationally. Although we see it different in terms of the progressive wins on election day, or in terms of what just happened in Georgia. To what extent has 
the radicalization of the Republican Party been the result of of long running internal forces, thinking back to Gingrich's Republican Revolution, the Tea Party, Ronald Reagan. We can think of lots of historical precedents of the Republican Party becoming more right wing in ways that were seen as beyond the pale radical at the time and then were after the fact normalized when that just became what the Republican Party was. To what extent is what we're seeing now just a con- a continuation of this long running process? And to what extent to what extent does Trump's election did that act as a force that has that independently accelerated that process of radicalization to the extent that it constituted and now constitutes a sort of qualitative rupture with the Republican Party as it had previously existed because things do seem different now. Trump, you know, of course, draws on the tradition of Pat Buchanan and before him, George Wallace. But in the past, aspects of those agendas were incorporated into mainstream republicanism, even as the insurgent was sidelined. But this time the insurgent took over. And while many Senate Republicans seem to want to extricate themselves from Trump, the base remains 100 percent, maybe not 100 percent, overwhelmingly with him. And not just the base, but a huge chunk of House Republicans. I mean, Trump had unified the party in a way that I I don't know has ever happened before with a major party in American history, at least not in a very long time. And and while Bush left office in disgrace, his approval ratings hit 24%. That's not going to happen with Trump. The way I read this, and maybe this isn't a fully worked out argument, is that the American kind of ruling class order has been lurching from crisis to crisis now for for some time. In, in a certain way, you could see the Reagan-Clinton period as, as having a, a coherence to it in the um, the handoff of 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 a, of a kind of neoliberal restructuring um, and the beginning of a project of both upward wealth redistribution and kind of greater internal repression, you know, with the origins of the the kind of mass incarceration as a way of dealing with kind of labor surplus and the surplus poor in this country. But but there was a, a new dispensation that was forming um, between the two parties. And then in some ways, as the parties were becoming closer in many ways in their policy orientation, there's a, a kind of effort to begin to polarize in other ways. So the polarization kind of takes place um, within a context in which there's actually a lot of increasing policy alignment around a lot of issues. Now, that's not to say that the the, the different class bases of the different parties weren't always somewhat different. I mean, both parties are cra- cl- cross-class coalitions in which different sectors of a kind of plutocratic elite, one more nationally focused with the Republican Party, the other maybe more internationally focused with the Democratic Party, you know, try to corral different kinds of bases, right? And the Republican Party has long used kind of racial nationalist appeals to to kind of cohere the, the, the base, whereas the Democratic Party has appealed to, to much more of a kind of kind of liberal diversity language. In some ways, there's been different attempts now to kind of break through that impasse. The, the Bush attempt, I think, was basically to say, we can remake the Republican Party as a big tent party uh, with diversity, and we can kind of grow, grow the base 
Uh, and the way that we're also going to do that is by sort of making sure that we we define a new external enemy, right? And the new external enemy is going to be be in this in this kind of long war that we're going to have, right? And of course, the long war is also motivated by by a vision of of kind of reconstituting American supremacy, a kind of supremacy that is also supposedly going to rebound back economically to the benefit of the country and certainly to the constituencies uh, that the Bush administration um, seeks to mobilize, right, for its electoral gain. That's a total failure, that project, right? An absolute unmitigated disaster. It doesn't work in any respect. And then Obama comes along and it seems, and I think many of us thought this when Obama came along, I certainly did, but now we have a kind of a, a, kind of a different version um, a, a version of realignment that is similarly going to reconstitute a kind of a, a majoritarian politics with a diverse electorate. But now the gambit is going to be not in foreign policy. It's going to be we're finally going to break a certain impasse in domestic policy. Uh, we're not going to re- reconstitute the empire. We're going to sort of preserve what we have in a kind of a lower key way. But we're going to finally get some kind of like healthcare through that sort of creates a new sort of floor under the American standard of living that is now in free fall and that gives people a sense of security. Uh, Well, obviously that project was more or less a failure with the sort of endless donut holes in the ACA that are still trying to be plugged and with a very, very imperfect kind of, kind of privatized patchwork healthcare system that still leaves, you know, many, many millions of people underinsured and at risk of kind of catastrophic circumstances should they get ill. So, uh, and, and of course, within these moments, the polarization was continuing to grow and to develop. So this, again, as I said, is not a fully worked out argument. Hillary Clinton comes along and seems to be basically saying, like, I'm going to continue along the, the kind of the road that's been mapped by Obama, you know, maybe with a little bit more imperial muscle behind what I'm going to do. Uh, and Trump comes along and says, no, no, look, these other projects, they failed. Look, they've all failed. The Bushies failed. The Obamanots failed. You know, I'm going to do it differently. And here's the third gambit. The third gambit is, you know, make America great again. We're going to reshore manufacturing. We're going to kind of rebuild the working class. Uh, we're going to put money back in people's pockets. And of course, we're going to like um, sort of redefine the the kind of enemy as the sort of the enemy at the border, the person who is kind of here illegally, the person who might infiltrate our, our politics. The, of course, there's still the residual elements of kind of law and order, the residual Islamophobia, all that's there. But it's a kind of a new gambit. And now that has like come to nothing. I mean, it kind of goes back to an earlier part of the conversation. I feel like the elite is kind of casting about for a project to kind of bring this kind of governing initiative called the United States into focus and and to give it a kind of impetus to basically resolve what are now deep structural problems in the economy and in the U.S. relationship to the world. Right. Um, that are also now p- problems that are manifesting as problems of kind of the, co- the very coherence of what it means to be a member of this polity. And, and in some ways, you know, we talk about Trump and the far right, but Trump is one of the least far right presidents 
in, in many respects compared to those who came before him. Trump jettisons austerity as the kind of modality of politics. Of course, he goes for tax cuts, which is the sort of classic, you know, Republican move. Um, he's relatively dovish on foreign policy. If you look at what Trump has done over the last four years, yeah, there's the kind of Jacksonian, we'll hit our enemies, and if they attack us, we'll like nuke them, right? There's all of that stuff. But in general, when it came to like foreign policy, Trump wasn't that interested. The one thing that he did that really departed from the orthodoxy of both parties was the moves on trade vis-a-vis China, which actually are policies that, that in some ways labor has been calling for for a much longer time in this country. So, so where do we put Trump on the, on the political spectrum when we consider all of those things? Of course, the, the racism, the revanchism, the authoritarianism, that's all there. And that's all of what makes Trump a person of the right. But there's, a, again, a kind of a scrambling going on here in which now the right is going to have to recompose itself and figure out what it's going to do next. What is its next project going to be? And it's hard to see what that's going to look like right now. The center, the center, I think, has a, has a more durable sort of sense of what it's, what it's doing, although what it's doing has not worked for many, many years. And I think it's not going to work this time unless somebody in that administration or pushing from the outside of that administration uh, gets a clue and says, no, we actually have to go for a real substantive expansion of our majority. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to have to peel away the voters from the Republican Party who are working class, who have needs that we are not meeting in the kind of policies we've been pursuing as a neoliberal party catering to affluent voters. Yeah. Joe, what is the next step for the Republican Party and the right more generally? And can there even really be a next step? Or is are they sort of stuck in suspended animation, given that Trump as an individual seems like he will continue to singularly dominate and he will dominate, emphasizing the claim that this election was very unfairly stolen from him and from his special people? What does it mean for the trajectory of right wing politics and ideology if, if that's what's dominating? Just a tie that to your last question as well. You know, there's a way in which I think what's happened in the Republican Party since the 1960s has been something that's both, it's kind of both cyclical and developmental, which is to say, I think there have been kind of like moments of, you know, populist authoritarianism that then get reabsorbed in kind of um, broader consensus, what came to be neoliberal consensus politics. You know, Wallace gets absorbed into, into, you know, Nixon, uh, who both calls for a silent majority and then governs liberally in many ways. That sends a number of people in the Republican Party in a search for more populist alternatives in the 1970s. William Rusher from National Review uh, and a number of other, you know, uh, Paul Weyrich and, and others who we, we associate with the new right, trying to find the basis for a far-right populist party. They, they try to get both Reagan and Wallace to run in 76 against Ford uh, as a third-party formation. Wallace ends up going to the Democrats and Reagan to the Republicans. But then this is what gives us Reagan in 1980, who kind of absorbs those far right or not, you know, say the populist right uh, tendencies on offer at the time. And then we see it again with Buchanan in 88 and then 92, really 92. But at that point, the kind of the consensus politics of the Cold War have broken down. And Buchanan is able to articulate a new kind of kind of populist right, America first set of ideas that, you know, that allows him to do surprisingly well in 92 and 96, but then gets absorbed 
again, back into a, a broader kind of still consensus politics in Bush, but, um, or George W. Bush. But I think, you know, the Tea Party then becomes the next version of that, that emerges as kind of um, a right-wing contestation within the Republican Party. And at that point, we see kind of, I think, a developmental arc, which turns into Trumpism. And I think partly it's because the, at this point, the old American consensus for the mid 20th century is finally done. Post-war consensus is finally done. And the right has more uh, possibility, more latitude to really move further right in a couple senses. I mean, partly we're kind of throwing around the word right and it means different things, but, you know, both the kind of the, the elite version of the, you know, the radical tax cuts that Nikhil mentioned, but also kind of performative cruelty and open kind of bare knuckle uh, uh, racism on the other hand. And so that leaves us in a kind of a weird position with the Republican Party that I think is now a different animal than it was, than it has been. I think if we're going to think about this historically, we should not just think about these things as only repeats of what the Republican Party has done in the past. We actually are in a moment of history where American institutions are really discredited and disliked across the board. And the Republican Party itself is reflecting, articulating a base that is, you know, partly was kind of in voting for Trump in 2016 was like a fuck you to Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz and everybody else who seemed to represent the, the neoliberal center as far as, as, as these voters were concerned. These were the white lumpen people who were partly brought in during the primary season then. But now we have like a much broader party, which is captured by Trump, as you said. And I think it's, uh, I think its future actually is unclear. And it's actually kind of interesting because I think this is no kind of like political science party literature uh, in the United States can can easily handle this right now. I think you it partly it, it does draw on older right wing and racist and authoritarian tendencies throughout American history, and a certain kind of like what Du Bois called democratic despotism. You know, from Bacon's Rebellion to the New York City draft riots. You know, till now. But um, I think that we are in a really unstable period in terms of what happens to the GOP, and we have to remember. It's a party system. So whatever happens, if the GOP kind of becomes increasingly unstable, it also means that this has shaping effects on the Democratic Party as well, you know, and, and in terms of the American institutions that are governed by um, party structures, like Congress, like the presidency, like state legislatures. And so I think actually it's really, I think we are in a very open period because of what's happened to the Republican Party. And it's not clear. I also think like, you know, like Nikhil, I, I think Trump himself was never an ardent far right figure. He's not, he's not ideologically coherent the way Pat Buchanan was in, in any sense. But, and I, and I think in that way that Trumpism is larger than Trump. And I think partly what, you know, the, the emergence of the right in the streets over the summer and the development and articulation of a much broader militia movement than we saw in the 90s, uh, as well as other elements that we've already listed in terms of what's out there on the right, really means that we're, it's something larger than Trump himself. And, and, it will, and it's shaping effects on the party in local party races, state party races, and then ultimately what happens four years from now, I think is, I think it's not going to be entirely, it'll be probably influenced by Trump, but Trump himself is not going to be able to dictate the terms of the uh, political direction of this, which I think takes us back to an earlier point about what the, you know, what the left is going to have to do is try to make appeals around shared forms of abandonment and immiseration, you know, that, that, um, that the right is going to be absolutely trying to appeal to. Yeah. I mean, speaking of ideological incoherence, something that 
we've touched on a little but not really addressed head on is what does it mean for the development of right wing politics and its trajectory going forward? That QAnon rather than a more conventional right wing or far right ideological framework like, I don't know, Nazism (laughs) has become so dominant. You know, how how must we rethink our you know, conventional assessments of the far right when we take into account that many, perhaps the majority, perhaps the vast majority, I don't know, I think definitely perhaps the majority uh, of the people storming the Capitol thought they were there to stop a satanic pedophile cabal. Uh, I'll let Joe take the bulk of this because I feel like I get stretched in my capacities. I didn't even really know what it was for the longest time because I was just like not that interested and then i watched the interview with the buffalo horn the buffalo the buffalo horn kind of coonskin shirtless guy you know who who was in the capitol apparently there are some other photos of him he's a q celeb he's a q celeb and apparently he was at some climate change march in arizona which again points to this sort of weird fluidities of street politics these days um but but he's giving an interview about you know the Fed and uh, of course the child pedophile rings and apparently there are this the 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 Swiss Alps uh, are like Swiss cheese with tunnels and you know and all kinds <laughs> of like things stored there and like secret bankers and secret meetings and cabal. I mean it's absolutely batshit and it goes so far like into this sort of intricate you know kind of kind of fantasies. And you you really just are kind of left to 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 wonder kind of how you begin to get any kind of traction with, with this and and I I I think that you know obviously the way in which you know people are now able to live in a kind of fantasy world through social media um, and the way this has been accentuated by the way we're all being driven mildly, if not significantly insane by this pandemic and the kind of quarantine, you know, it, 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 it does kind of bring our attention towards other aspects of our contemporary condition, which are not necessarily about the sort of ideological traditions and histories that we're so comfortable writing about and thinking about, but really the the kind of the very unique and and somewhat unprecedented aspects of this sort of um, you know the kind of information ecology, as I said before, that we now inhabit and and how it how it's how it's working on us. You know, and I, I really do think that there is no clear conception of what to do about social media. I mean, the beginnings of labeling Trump's tweets as falsehoods was like like a major breakthrough just in the last few weeks. Clearly, there's got to be something done about these big tech platforms, both in terms of kind of their their outsized role in our economy and how they're impacting us, uh, but also in the way in which they manage information. Um, and nobody knows how to do it. Right. Nobody has a clear idea like the, the, the there's the free speech side of the, 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 the argument. There's the fairness side of the argument. But then there's the side of the argument that really says these people need to be brought to heel because um, they have such a disproportionate power in kind of shaping what's available. And that is actually producing uh, certain kinds of effects that we're now seeing that are not clearly understood within what we've understood to be uh, the rational traditions of politics, even the ones we find odious, like the tradition of the right, um, which thrives on irrationality, of course, but now is sort of dealing with elements that I don't think even even a lot of right-wing politicians really fully understand. 
Yeah, Joe, Joe, is it is it is there something almost post ideological going on on the right, at least in terms of how we thought about modern ideologies, something we also see not just in QAnon, but with this emphasis on, you know, on, on affect over program, you know, on resentment, on owning the libs, this this liberalism and incubated nihilism that Wendy Brown writes about. Yeah, I mean, those are all earmarks of the right historically, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Polanyi, again, talked about how, you know, uh, countries approaching a fascist phase have a spread of irrationalistic philosophies and, you know, along with anti-capitalist demagogy, heterodox, heterodox currency views, you know, et cetera, all kinds of things kind of spin around. And then you've got, you know, a, you know, strong visceral affective qualities to these things as well. So, you know, fascism as a, you know, George Bataille talked about this and great length in the psychological structure of fascism. There's a lot going on here, which is really not about ideology at all. And I think in our under current conditions, you know, information ecology, as Nikhil put it, we are really are open and vulnerable to all kinds of pushes and pulls, which are, which, you know, are not grounded in rational or critical thought. I mean, we, you know, I'm sure Nikhil does this too. Sometimes you, you have to confront this and work through it in the classroom with students, you know, who have all, you know, I, I see with, with stuff my kids come to me with that they've gotten on TikTok, you know, and I don't know how, you know, this is, but, but partly it is, it's a contemporary concern because of social media, but it is, you know, kind of a flight from, from reason, you know, this is the way that the Frankfurt School talked about, you know, the rise of the right as well. I think there's something deeper and older here about how that, how that works. To close out, and we've touched on this a little bit, but but this all raises the question of how the Biden administration's government governance might shape the contours and trajectory of the right and their power. Because the Obama administration's handling of the economic crisis, of course, was critical in the rise of the Tea Party. How how might Biden's response to today's crises, so many crises, shape what happens on the right? And where does the left fit into all that? I think this, this, these are these are the these are the questions, and I think they're the questions that we're going to be we're going to be contending with now for the next several years, um, which is good because this is what we do. Um, the question of what happens to the right, I think, is now really up in the air. the The Republican Party is going to be in a in a in a moment of intense reckoning. Um, I think that that there, there there are real divisions there that that Trump kind of sutured over and that that are going to come that are coming back into the open. They're they're actually in some ways also strong ideological divisions. Um, do they return to being the kind of party of no, the party of austerity? How does that square with the kind of kind of new kind of demands, exorbitant demands that might be coming from parts of parts of their their base with the anti-institutional tendencies that they have cultivated the extra parliamentary tendencies they've cultivated you know i think it's really interesting when you see like the the kind of rep- the repudiation of josh hawley happening i mean josh hawley was the one who kind of you know thought he could kind of kind of ride the tiger and also retain a lot of institutional credibility but that seems to be at least in the in the short term less possible and maybe in the longer term. And obviously, it's also going to depend a lot on what the Trumps do, what Trump himself and the Trump family do. I mean, I think everybody is under the assumption that he's going to continue um, his his kind of reign of terror over this party 
in some ways now uh, uh, post-election. But I think that he's got a lot of problems and I don't really think so myself. I think I think the, the the media platforms are ready to cut him off. I think the Southern District of New York is ready to like plunge into his finances. I think his debtors are ready to call in the bills. I think all the people he's soiled and who have been kind of kind of at the wrong end of a long con are ready to take their knives out. I just I just think at some point there is a tipping point. You know, and I think we've all said that about Trump, that maybe the tipping point sort of never comes. But at some point, there is a tipping point, and it may not be him landing in jail. But there is no other figure on the right right now who who has his kind of his kind of powers of persuasion and appeal. So, you know, who who emerges and how they emerge. Yeah. Holly is not going to pull it off. <laughs> Nikki, Nikki Haley, you know, is another one. I mean, I think Tom Cotton navigated the, the, the end of Trump with a plot. I think Cotton is is one to watch because I think he's very, very interested in kind of reconstituting a much more hawkish uh, and militant and aggressive foreign policy. So there there's a lot going on. And I think it's 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 very unclear to me, but it's important to watch and I'll certainly be watching it closely. Um, the Biden part of it, I think that the situation is set up well for Biden. I mean, he's he he is as normy as they come. You know, he he's coming in where people are kind of looking for calm. They're looking for a figure who is going to reassure them. Um, he's coming in seemingly with um, with a mandate to spend money um, on the things that the Democrats promised, uh, which now the Republicans are going to be in a challenging position to stop. Although it might end up be that be being that the Democrats themselves figure out how to sabotage that, and I I say that if we see that happening, um, then we know we're back in the very very dangerous spiral um, that we entered into in you know two thousand nine two thousand ten. But he starts, but but Biden starts with a much lower approval rating than Barack Obama, who I believe started out at like 67 percent in 2009. Uh, that's 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 true. I, I don't know how much that matters, but um, may, maybe maybe it does. Um, but I think, you know, Biden doesn't have a huge amount to lose to like go big. Um and I'm I'm not convinced he's going to. And I'm I imagine we're going to start to see commissions on the reform of you know Medicare and Social Security and that kind of stuff. Um, and if they go in that go that route to basically be like we're going to be the administration that produces the kind of the kind of grand bargain you know that is that is about reining in the long term entitlement spending so that we can continue to pour money into defense and tax cuts and other things like that. You know we're 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 we have have to like get rid of them and I but I also think that's going to put us in a much more dangerous position in relationship to the right. I do think there's an opportunity here to really uh weaken substantially weaken the GOP. Um and that's the opportunity that they have to take if they want to move anything forward over the over the longer term horizon. Um I don't think I'm particularly optimistic about that, but I do think that's how I would be be thinking and and what I would what I would hope for, Joe. Yeah, I you know again I think that regardless of what happens to Trump, you the the you know neoliberal elites in the uh, GOP are going to have to enlist the sympathies and passions of a base that wasn't just plugged in because of Trump's own charismatic powers, but also how they interpreted and framed their own forms of 
grievance, you know, and I think that which can't just be solved by Wall Street. So there's going to be, uh, you know, a, a lot of, I think, dynamism in the GOP. And, and I've, I've, I'm not sure it's going to come down to, you know, either one or another major presidential leader. Partly, I think, I think sometimes we mistake about presidential politics that personalities really drive it. And partly it's because the, the very nature of the presidency and the media around it makes us think that. But partly it's structural conditions that produce these presidencies and produce the possibilities of certain presidencies. And then what happens within them are, you know, are the effect of other things, other dynamics happening on the ground. And so I think that that also then is the case for what happens in a Biden administration. It'll depend on the, you know, a number of things that are have yet to unfold. I think we have not, we will have a much larger reckoning of the economic wreckage of the pandemic in front of us and then and how uh biden chooses to respond to that and how you know democrats in the senate and house choose to respond to that is going to probably determine a lot of uh which way this goes i think for the left the the left just ought to continue to push hard on the the very issues that the left always has you know uh you know on and right now it's going to be you know issues of evictions issues of of greater payments issues of keeping people afloat issues of 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 healthcare you know, the things that we we know of which have been the you know the 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 mobilizing tropes but i you know i guess i'm i'm less i think about that less in terms of what it means you know the, what has been dynamic on the left has not been the democratic party in the last few months it was black lives matter in the streets it was it, you know it was it was strong demands you know mostly focused on police but those and the carceral state but those are demands that can this was a largely working class movement and those demands can be you know branched out to encompass all kinds of things and so i, I feel like our focus on the left ought to be less than just about you know how we think about the court politics of of the Biden administration and what kind of demands we organize for and push for on the streets which will also differ i think locally and regionally but um you know it's it, we're kind of in the place that we've always been in terms of what we need to do i think well joe lowndes and nikhil paul singh thank you both very much thank you dan take care yeah thanks so much dan Nikhil Paul Singh is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and faculty director of NYU's prison education program. His most recent book is Race in America's Long War. Joe Lowndes is a professor of political science at the University of Oregon, a member of United Academics AAUP AFT Local 3209, and the author with Daniel Martinez Hosang of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race in the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. I interviewed them both about that book last year. I will put a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, he was like a juggler under the necessity of keeping the public gaze on himself. That is to say, under the necessity of arranging a coup d'etat in miniature every day. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our outgoing communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. You guys have both been so great. Our incoming communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Welcome. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio-Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio.com. 
please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you just telling other people about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>